You're listening to the preaching ministry of Redemption Bible Church in New Braunfels, Texas, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you seek to worship Christ, walk with Christ, and work for Christ, all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, please visit redemption.bible. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you soon at one of our upcoming worship services. Once you have your Bible, go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word to John 16, verse 4. We'll actually pick it up in the second half of verse 4, John 16. And uh, we're nearing the end of this upper room discourse where we've journeyed for uh, several weeks now. And uh, we just joined Jesus and his disciples at their last meal together. They're sharing this meal, and Jesus is really, this is his last message, uh, so to speak, as he uh, is speaking to his disciples. And in this meal, he's modeled just what sacrificial service is all uh, about, and an unconditional love that is to mark the life of those who follow Jesus. And as they're eating, he's also been re-emphasizing many of these uh, biblical truths, those critical and countercultural lessons that, uh, that he's really taught them throughout the years, but now is re-emphasizing as his time is, is really running short now with his, his disciples. And in all this as well over dinner, he's met, met head-on really the realities of betrayal and relational hurt and worldly hate that we can expect in a sin-broken world, these things that, that, that are, we just can't escape. And on top of all of his teaching and modeling and re-emphasizing these lessons, he's made it clear that he is leaving. And really a few short hours and he won't be around to walk with them through this next season for the rest of their lives in, in the same way that he has for the last three years as they've been his disciples. And as you can imagine, this news has created the turmoil and the fear and even sorrow that he references today in their hearts. However, Jesus won't just leave them alone or afraid or grieving, for he tells them about a difference maker. The difference maker in the life of a believer as we follow Jesus. And so let's come to this next portion in the conversation around the dinner table, around this upper room discourse to really discover who the difference maker in a believer's life really is. Join me there in the middle, halfway through verse 4, and it says this, Jesus is speaking, I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I did not go away, the Helper will not come to you. And, but if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you, and all that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. A little while, and 
you will see me no longer, and again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? And because I am going to the Father? So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. And Jesus knew what they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. This is God's word for God's people this morning. In the next section in uh, our our walk through John's gospel here. What we've seen along the way in, in this is that trouble, hatred, and even sorrow are to be expected. And left to ourselves, apart from Christ, apart from the truth of his word, and apart really from the difference maker, these troubles, these sorrows, this grief would sink us. And so as we read here in Jesus' teaching, who then, church, who is the difference maker, especially in our sorrow? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the difference maker. And so I think we can articulate the central expectation of Jesus' teaching like this. It's on the screen. Write it down in your notes. We can expect the Holy Spirit to be the difference maker in our sorrow. Expect the Holy Spirit to be the difference maker in your sorrow. There are things that truly do help. There are people that truly do help that are all the difference maker in life, in sports, in all things. But especially as we follow Jesus, it is the Holy Spirit that makes all the difference in the world especially in our sorrow. And now, thankfully, God in His grace has given us both hope and help in the circumstances that grieve us. In our seasons of mourning, He has given us hope, hope that we have seen already, particularly in chapter 14, when Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. He gave us the hope of His return for us and eternity with Him in heaven. This is the silver lining, the, 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 the greatness that we long for, the glory rather that we long for is the hope that Jesus is coming back. It's a hope that years later, the Apostle Paul will also pick up on and articulate in his teaching to the Thessalonians in their own grief, in their own persecution, in their own attempt to follow Jesus in a world that hated them. He would write this, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. Just listen as I read it. He tells them, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. That's a euphemism for those who have died. It's just a softer way. He doesn't want them to be uninformed about them, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Now, stop there. Do you believe that? 
You believe that Jesus died and rose again. Okay, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always, always, always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. It's 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. There's great hope in that, right? And even as we grieve death, even as we walk, there is still hope, a hope, an encouragement that he says. That we long for that day, whether we, we, we ourselves fall asleep and die in the Lord, or whether we are left and we hear that cry of command, we hear the trumpet sound, and those who are died in Christ are coming, and we meet him in the air and be with him forever. There is great hope and comfort and encouragement that better days are waiting, we who follow the Lord. But while we wait for that, while we wait for his return, we also have help. Help here and now. Help for the, from the Holy Spirit. Help when we are hated. Help when we are hurting. Help that actually makes a difference. And it's a help that Jesus says in this, in this chapter that is better than even he can give. Did you pick that up in verse 7? It is to your advantage, he tells the disciples, that I go away. And maybe you, like yourself, you hear that, you read that, and you're wondering, like the disciples are like, how can it get any better than God in the flesh right there with you having a meal? Like, could you just imagine that even now? Sitting around the lunch, uh, lunch this afternoon with Jesus in the flesh. Like, that sounds pretty awesome, doesn't it? That sounds pretty awesome to have him there and the, the good, just all the questions that they could have asked, all the questions that you and I have about who God is and how he works. The list of questions that we are even compiling ourselves, even now. How many of us have one of those lists, maybe just in our head, or maybe it's figure, or actual literal, like in your notes on your phone, of like all the things I'm going to ask God when I get to heaven. Have one of those? When I'm in his presence, I want to ask him why and all these things. Well, like I, hate to bring, I think what he's referring to actually later there is that when we come to that day, you're not going to ask anything of him. So um, maybe you'll learn it along the way, but... We'll be worshiping and glorifying him. But here's the thing, like even that, like having him next to us, all these things. What Jesus is referring to is, no, the coming of the Holy Spirit is a help that is even better than he can give. But why is it better? How, how, how can it get better than Jesus on earth? What exactly is it that the Holy Spirit does? Well, that's the questions. Those are the questions, rather, that the text answers for us. How does this get better? Why is this better? What difference does the Holy Spirit make? Well, write this down. It's the first point in the first section of verses there. He convicts the world. The difference that the Holy Spirit makes is that he convicts the world. It starts in verse 4 there by Jesus acknowledging that he hasn't said all this stuff from the beginning. He hasn't had to. It's new information. He was right there. He was with them. But now that he is about to leave, really within hours... So you take the timeline of Jesus' uh, uh, last days, he's about to leave, but it's super important 
that they comprehend, at least to what they can, about the work of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and it's interesting here because Jesus keys in now on, on a, a question that they haven't asked him in verse 5. None of them have asked, where are you going? At least they haven't asked it in the right way. It's interesting because Peter did ask this question in, in chapter 13, 36. Jesus has said he's going to go. The betrayal is going to happen. Uh, he commissions them to go and love uh, others as he himself has loved. And Peter asks, where are you going? And Jesus just kind of squashes it. He's like, you can't come. As a matter of fact, you're going to deny me. You can't lay down your life. You can't stand in my point. Jesus is talking about going to the cross. Then Thomas in chapter 14 picks up on it, but he doesn't ask like where he's going. He asks, well, how do we get there? We don't know where you are going. And then Philip's like, well, hey, just show us the Father. But even in their question asking, even in that whole exchange there at the end of chapter 13 and beginning of verse 14, moments ago in the dinner conversation, what do their questions reveal? It reveals a concern for themselves. Jesus is leaving, and uh, what they are most worried about is the grief and the sorrow and the the, uh, aloneness that they are going to feel when Jesus is no longer uh, uh, next to them. The anxiety, the sorrow. He says, that's why Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. But the point is, Jesus is making is, none of them have asked, uh, where are you going? None of them have asked about him and truly where he is going. He has to leave, be crucified, resurrected, and ascend into heaven as he's drawing out here so that the Holy Spirit can then come and do the work that the Spirit can only do. Maybe you're asking, well, why? Why is he saying that? Like, okay, you have to go, but if I don't go, then he can't come, but I go, and then I will send him to you. And, you know, the question kind of comes to my mind. Maybe it's yours too. It's like, well, why can't they both be here at the same time? I could either be great, right? Both of them here, it's like the Father in heaven, like lonely and can't, you know, is this like a relay race? Like, all right, your turn. How you go endure the humans down there and leave heaven's throne? Like, no, no. Why can't they? Well, the answer why they can't both will come actually in a little bit. But he, what he does do is he goes to explain then the why and the how he goes while also explaining the work of the Holy Spirit. See, the reason is better here is the scope of ministry. The scope of Jesus' ministry was local, limited to the confines of a human body and the geography in which he found himself, the location that was there. Yes, his words would continue to proceed. His teaching and reputation would would flow from him and, and go out from him. But the ministry of the Holy Spirit is global. Is global in the fact that he says he has come to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. His convicting work was the world, whereas Jesus, his work exposed sin. He physically demonstrated a perfect life of righteousness that honored the Lord and will be there at the judgment. They're all things that he taught on in John that we saw highlighted here. But it is the Holy Spirit who does the actual convicting work in a person's heart. It is the Spirit at work in us to do this work of conviction. Now, I want us to understand here really what conviction is. Conviction is the exposing of sin to persuade a person to turn to Christ. The conviction is the exposing of sin that, that causes somebody, that persuades somebody to say no to sin and yes to the Lord. 
And I want us to uh, like untangle this in our mind because sometimes I think we mistake uh, conviction for condemnation. Two very different concepts in the Bible, though two very real things that we've seen in recent weeks and uh, even as we went back to uh, John chapter 3. But for the believer, how, what, how do we stand in terms of condemnation? Condemnation being the sentence, a court sentence of guilt. What does Romans 8, 1 tell us? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As we follow Christ, as we walk with him, the penalty of our sin was paid. We are free, free, just as we sang out from under the condemnation from sin. But it is still the convicting work that the Holy Spirit does in us and at the moment of our regeneration and as we continue to follow Jesus in all things. And so we, we have to get this in our mind. Conviction is the exposing of sin and pointing to Christ. Condemnation is that sentence that says, you are horrible and helpless. The world already stands condemned in their sin, uh, in their unbelief of Jesus. We saw that last week. We read that in John 3, uh, 18, right? That's why Jesus came, but it is the Holy Spirit that then convicts people. It is the enemy that condemns people. But the Holy Spirit brings us conviction as we too bear witness to the gospel as we proclaim the judgment that comes from sin and the grace and forgiveness that is found in Jesus, the Holy Spirit does this work in us to bring us to life. To see this in, a, in even a different way of conviction and condemnation, it is the difference in our mind of being unworthy and worthless. It's the idea as we come to Christ where we see like con conviction over and over, the Holy Spirit brings from my like I am so unworthy of this grace, the grace that God has shown me in Christ Jesus and continues to show me moment by moment. Conviction is that the unworthiness that leads us to tell God, "I'm sorry for my sin and thank you for your mercy." I'm sorry that I have uh, that I have uh, that I have sinned against you, but thank you for. Your, your good forgiveness. Thank you for Christ. But it is condemnation, whether in our own thoughts or thoughts from the enemy that in our mind that tell you, you are worthless. You are no good. Might as well just continue to give in. You are so unloved, so continue to seek love in your sin. And as we hear those thoughts and we give in to this, then it leads to self-pity and self-indulgence but it is the convicting work of the Holy Spirit in us that leads us back to Christ. And he convicts in three ways. Do you see it here? It's like a beautiful three-point sermon in verses 9, 10, and 11, right? He convicts of sin, the sin primarily, look at this, of unbelief. He convicts because we do not believe in him, both as we come to Christ, like, hey, this is Christ. He is the Savior. He is our rescuer. He convicts of unbelief as we continue to walk in him and as we believe in ourselves, for our own saving, our own ability. But he also convicts of righteousness. Because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Righteousness is that which is right and pleasing to God. What it is that, uh, that honors the Lord. And so maybe you're trying to untangle, what does this mean here? Well, here's what Jesus is referring to. He convicts of righteousness. He is the only one who can go to the Father unhindered. He is about to ascend and go directly to the Father without uh, any need for a mediator. 
He is our mediator, our access, our righteousness to God. He is the one who set the standard of perfect righteousness. And any attempts at our own righteousness or to just go to the Father apart from Christ are insufficient or self-righteous. And so what does the Spirit do? He brings this conviction that it is only in Christ that we can be right with God. And he brings us to it, and he reminds us, he convicts concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. He convicts, he shows, like, there is a judgment that is coming. And the ruler of this world, Satan himself, was judged at the garden. Right there from Genesis 3, at the moment sin entered the world, his, his fate was pronounced. The ruler of the world is judged, and God will judge those whose uh, people and its systems are under his influence. And so the Spirit does this work in bringing you to Christ. Maybe he's doing that even now. Maybe now he is bringing you to a place where you are uneasy in your sin. He's bringing you back to the glory of Christ, who we've sang about this morning, to the beauty of his forgiveness, to the the. the, the a really marvelous offer of salvation. A point where we come to Christ, where we have that choice. Bring, God, we, we choose you. We believe that you have died. You have rose again on our behalf. The Spirit does this convicting work. He is the difference maker in our sorrow, in our life, every step of the way. But he doesn't just only do a convicting work. Note this in verse 12. He also guides believers in the truth. The difference that he makes as we walk through this life, particularly as we endure grief and sorrow, he guides believers in the truth. I love this. What he says, verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Right? Like there is an unending uh, content that Jesus has to teach on. Right? It's unending, but they, they can't bear it right now in the place that they are in their maturity. Plus, he's about to leave in, in a few hours. And what do we see here in, this, in verse 12? We really experience the tender grace of Jesus. He's not like toying with them a little bit, like, oh, I have, I have a whole lot to say, but you know what? You're not good enough. I can't tell you right now. But he actually cares for them in their sorrow, in their confusion, at this point where they're grieved because this man who they've loved and followed is about to go away. And at this point in their spiritual maturity, it would be too much for them to carry. And I love this about the Lord. You know, the Lord, in the same way, like with his conviction, God doesn't just overwhelm us with all the enormity of our sin all at once. There are times where we are under heavy conviction and we can see like the laundry list of all the ways that we have failed the Lord. But the reality is if he laid out everything, all the uh, ways in which we have offended God, it would, it would crush us. It would crush us with just even the thought of all of our sin. Like it crushed Jesus at the cross. As Isaiah 53, 5 says, he was what? Crushed for our iniquities. An eternal weight of sin could only be borne by an eternal God unless he did then. Yes, we will spend eternity crushed under the weight of our sin. 
so he was on our behalf and he doesn't just like uh, beat us over the head with it and in the same way in regards to conviction also God doesn't just download all of eternal truth and eternal wisdom into us all at once and you know first thought is like man that would actually be kind of nice right we come to faith in Christ. God opens our eyes to the beauty of the gospel. We start following him. And like all of a sudden, we just have this like massive download of all of biblical truth and systematic theology and biblical theology and pastoral theology and all of godly wisdom. Like we just had it all downloaded uh, yeah, automatically into our life. That would be kind of awesome. But actually, would it, you know? I think in those moments, we would actually probably like explode. Our, we are like our, our processor would not be able to actually handle it. We, 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 we wouldn't. And that's the reason why I think for all of eternity, we will be forever learning and worshiping God, uh, learning about him and worshiping him for what we're learning about him every moment of the way. We can't bear it all at once. And that's just really in a big uh, sense. But here too, so God in his grace, as Jesus is referencing here to the disciples, he dispenses truth in gracious portions that we can bear. The grace and truth that we need to meet every moment, to take every step. The grace and the truth that we need to stay dependent and humble and abiding in him. For if we did have all the, uh, the information downloaded into us, we would be so swollen with pride and arrogance, we would be tempted to think that we did not need God. And so here, the Spirit guides them. They cannot bear it. He's guiding them into all truth. Look at that. Look at verse 13. Where is it? As we follow Jesus in faith, look, where does the Spirit of truth guide us? Guide us where? Into all the truth. Truth. The truth. Who is the truth? Jesus is the truth. The truth that comes from God. And we can trust the Spirit. Why? Because he speaks on the authority of God. The authority of God's Word. See, the Spirit will always guide us and lead us in line with the Word. Who will always lead us in line of what the authority of God with things is like the Holy Spirit isn't just like some free agent, uh, free agent over here doing what he wants, speaking what he wants, acting outside the confines of, uh, of the, the Trinity. No, but he will guide us here even into things that are to come. Like, look what he says. But he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. What's he referring to here? Is this like prophecy or something? Well, Yeah. Maybe that's one of the things, right? Especially he'll show his disciples. Many of the men sitting around the table hearing these things uh, will write the New Testament. You know, things like who wrote this book? Gospel that we're in. Who wrote it? John. What else did he write in our New Testament? Revelation. He wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, those epistles, which also speak to the end. And he also wrote Revelation which depicts so many future events. But so will Peter and Matthew, others that are here, will hear these things. And so, yes, things that are to come in that sense, but also in a more uh, practical way, the things that are come, the Spirit will guide us into all the truth and the things that are to come in the path before us. Our life now as we follow Jesus the Holy Spirit shedding light, leading us the way that we should go according to his word. Psalm 119, 105, what, uh, what does that say? Your word is a lamp to my feet and a what? 
and a light to my path. He will lead them in through his word. He, Jesus has already touched on this in chapter 14, verse 26. Already the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and will bring to your remembrance all that Jesus said, what we have here in his word. And so he guides us through his word by his Holy Spirit. But how does all that work? What's the dynamic between God's word and God's spirit as we follow Jesus? How does does all this this work here? Let me just read to you a quote that I think helps shed some light. It's a book that I read many years ago by J.D. Greer. It's called Jesus Continued, and he explains it like this. Here's how it begins the quote. The spirit takes God's timeless truths and makes them come alive in us. He helps us understand them, shows us how to implement them, and empowers us to accomplish them. He transforms task lists into a relationship. He goes on to explain this dynamic. The Word is eternal and unchanging, but the Spirit's direction is temporary and varied. The Word gives us promises. The Spirit compels us to risk in certain situations. The Word outlines the mission, but the Spirit inspires a vision. The Word sets the standard. The Spirit guides the operation. The Word shows us the end game, but the Spirit points to a starting place. The Word sets our expectation. The Spirit inspires our dreams. The Word describes the character of God. The Spirit pulls us into His emotions. The Word recounts God's act of salvation. The Spirit sheds abroad His love in our hearts. The Word gives us the revelation. The Spirit illumines the explanation. The Word provides the content. The Spirit brings the conviction. The Word helps us to know. The Spirit enables us to learn. The Word commands us to hear. The Spirit empowers us to listen. The Word commands us to obey. And the Spirit beckons us to follow. The Spirit makes God's Word personal to us, end quote. See, that dynamic is the difference maker that the Holy Spirit is. Making this personal, helping us to understand, apply, and obey it in our lives. It is the difference between just walking through life with a guidebook and actually having a guide there with you. See, think of following Jesus like this, like faith being an adventure through the mountains, through a, you know, a mountain range. It is the Bible that is our guidebook through the train, telling us where to go and how to make it through to the end. But it is the Holy Spirit who is there with us, the personal guide leading us every step of the way. Take this trail. Don't go that way. Avoid this cliff. Let's turn here. Let's stop and wait a moment. It is the Spirit here who is guiding us, who knows the way through. Why? Because it is the Spirit who is also there at the moment it was all created. Who knows the way through. And so as it applies to our sorrow, our confusion, as we're enduring the hatred of the world and the hardships of life, where is it then that we turn for our guidance? Well, we turn to the Word. It's John 17, 17, then just a little bit. Jesus is going to pray, and he tells your word is truth. And knowing that as we come to God's word, his spirit will guide us in the understanding and applying of his word and the making sense of our circumstances and, 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 the, and lifting the burden of our grief. He, we won't ever be led astray by the Holy Spirit as we follow his word. And see, if we've ever misunderstood or misapplied the scripture, that's on us, not on him. 
And see, he guides us through. But connected to his guiding work is also his glorifying work. The Holy Spirit at work, making the difference in our grief, in our hardship, when we are hated, is this fact. Write it down, point three. He glorifies Jesus. You see this here? Verse 14, he will glorify me. And now Jesus has used this term often already at dinner, and so we've kind of untangled it here. Remember here, we glorify Jesus, right, as we go vertical and as we make much of him, as we ascribe to Jesus the glory due his name, the worth and value that he has in our life. But God also glorifies Jesus as he reveals or displays his splendid work. As that comes out, God displays, he is at work and he shows us the work that God is doing. And so this is what the spirit uh, is doing and will do. And why, in answer to the question, why they couldn't both be there at the same time, why Jesus had to go, because Jesus' greatest work of redeeming sinful people at the cross and being resurrected, defeating death and ascending to heaven hadn't been done yet. And now as the Holy Spirit shines a massive spotlight on the gospel, He couldn't come before this. He had to wait to come and indwell us in this way. And so think of the Holy Spirit like that. His glorifying work. Think of him like the giant spotlight on Jesus in our lives. The Spirit is not out here trying to draw attention to himself, but to direct our gaze, to direct our worship to Jesus, right? And it would be weird like to to notice and to praise the spotlight and not the object in the limelight, right? Like think of it this way, right? We have this beautiful work that you know Gordon and Derek made here on the on the backdrop, right? But it would be in like looking at it and say, wow, that's really nice. It'd be like, but the spotlights are really cool up there, right? Oh, wow, that's a no. It, we, we, we we now we can't neglect it. Like if we didn't have the spotlights, then this would all be in the dark and we couldn't admire it. The same is true. The point here that is being made is that the Holy Spirit comes and makes much of Jesus in our life, especially in our sorrow, especially in our confusion. He doesn't just leave us in the dark forever. But the Holy Spirit glorifies us with the truth. He takes all that is mine, Jesus says, and declares it to you. What is it? What is it that belongs to Jesus? What is it that belongs? All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, what I said, therefore, it belongs to the Holy Spirit. And from the context, we conclude that it's the truth. It's his ways, his plan, his purposes belong to him. And so the Spirit helps us to see when our tears blind us. It is the Spirit at work to make us see Jesus through the tears. It's, it's, it's in, when, our, when our heart is mourning loss. It is the Spirit at work in us to make Jesus that much more sweet. To make the hope that we have in Christ that much more uh, sweet. So we, what, what difference does the Holy Spirit make in our sorrow? He shows us the purpose. He shows us the truth, even if he's only dispensing it moment by moment, little by little, to keep us dependent on him. As he is working to, here's the last point, to turn our sorrow into joy through our prayer, through our dependence on him. See, this is the difference maker that the Holy Spirit does as he keeps us close to to, to Christ, abiding in Christ, particularly in our sorrow. It is in the moments 
of grief, the moments of mourning, the moments when we are hated, the moments when there is hurt and pain and days are hard, that we press into Christ that much closer, that the abiding connection is that much stronger. And so we come here in verse 16. It's like one of those riddles from Jesus, right? A little while and you'll see me no longer. And again, a little while and he will see me. So we, you know, we know now on this side of the cross what he's referencing. Right? That here he's going to, they're not going to see him. He's going to die, be buried. And then three days later, he will rise again. And so that's why there's the confusion here, right? Disciples are like, what is he talking about again? You know, it's kind of like the lull in the conversation. They're sitting around. Maybe they're passing some bread or they're just listening. Jesus has said this. And maybe Jesus is, you know, just like the dramatic pause while he's watching. He said it. Not in like, because he's just toying with them, but he's trying to teach them something. And I love it here. You know, like Jesus, as we've seen along the way, and Johnny like knows what they want to ask him. Right? He knows what's on their mind. He knows what they're thinking. He just like, he just puts it all out there on the table. Is this what you want to ask me? And he answers it with two truly, truly statements. Did you note that there? Remember when we see that verse 20 and verse 23, whenever Jesus says this, it's not like his other words are not any less true, but they are an indicator to us to listen up. Truly, truly, verse 20, I say to you, you will weep and lament and the world will rejoice. Right? He's saying, I'm going to the cross. And at that moment, at the cross, the disciples will grieve. And the world will rejoice at first, thinking that they have won, thinking that, that he has been defeated. But wait a little bit, and the tides will turn. And he uses another example, an example that every mom in the house can uh, you know, identify with, right? Just like in labor, labor begins with excruciating pain, increasingly excruciating, apart from the, you know, the glory of modern medicine, right? And even still, sometimes, labor begins with excruciating pain and ends in exhilarating joy. Holding that precious baby. Seeing the grace and kindness and gift of God in new birth. I, I got to celebrate many. I've been at hospital more in the last like month in the labor and delivery than I've been you know, in forever celebrating the exhilarating joy. And the disciples, just a little bit, will experience the excruciating pain of their friend, their master, being brutalized at the cross. And days later, will experience the unshakable joy of seeing their master standing before them, resurrected in his glorified body. And that transforming experience will ignite their prayer life to greater fervency like never before. That's why you get into the book of Acts and what are the disciples doing at every turn? Every time they're mourning, every time they're in trouble, every time there's something to celebrate, what are they doing? Praying. They're in prison. It's midnight. Praying. They go knock on somebody's door. What are the people doing? They're praying. See, when you know how Jesus changes things by the work of his Holy Spirit, whether in your own salvation or through your own answered prayers, you pray like never before. Knowing that the sorrow is temporary. Psalm 30, David tells us that sorrow may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. 
Sorrow is temporary, but Jesus tells us that there is a joy that can't be taken away. It's eternal. No one will take your joy from you, verse 22. And it is all satisfying. Verse 23, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. And so what, what is it? Your joy, your, or rather your sorrow will turn to joy. God will keep you close. The work of the Spirit will do this in you. And then he tells you to pray, right? Truly, truly, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until you, now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. This is the third time we've seen this in just the upper room discourse. There must be something to it. Ask anything and you will receive. And that your joy may be full. What does he mean? Asking anything in his name. Is that, you know, like we've joked about before, is that just like praying for whatever, God, I really need your help in this. God, I need this. Oh yeah, by the way, in Jesus' name, amen. Jesus, it's all yours. But if you forget to say that, if you just say amen, all bets are off. Is that what he's getting at? No. Let's say this. Let's say you wanted to have a party and you wanted to invite a whole bunch of people and you did the work to make the reservations and to pay for all the food, all the drinks, and all those things. You made reservations and then you invited uh, me and everybody else in here. How would we get into your party? How would we get to your restaurant or your table at their back room in that restaurant? We would come up and we would ask the host and we would tell them, what would we appeal to? Your name. I am here because Jeannie invited me. She did the work. She's paying. I'm ordering off the menu that she has, has given. And what would happen? And the host would take me back to her table. I had appealed, I'd asked in her name. I made it there. If the, this is what Jesus is saying. We appealing in our prayer. We are appealing to the work of the Holy Spirit, or the work of Jesus on our behalf for the access that we even have. The grace in which we stand as we pray, we would not be praying. We could not abide in Jesus. We could not be asking this way apart from the work that Jesus did on the cross to save us. Apart from the work, the, the righteousness that is not our own, we come now through the mediator through Jesus and our prayers taken by the intercessing work of the Holy Spirit on our behalf. But he also is referring to, we are asking then for what Jesus would want. Ordering off his menu, praying for God's will to be at work in and through and out from our lives. Praying that we would be saved or that others would be saved. Praying that God would sanctify us and do his transforming work in us first before he even changes the situation. That he would teach us to surrender, to submit to his will. That he would teach us that we, how to suffer well for his name. That he's teaching us to be pure, undefiled in this world. This is his prayer. And as he answers, these, those are the prayers that God loves to answer. And as he answers in this way, guess what wells up in us? An all-satisfying joy. Ask, you will receive, that your joy may be made that's true joy. Joy that isn't based on our circumstances. Joy that isn't anchored in the ever-changing things in our life. But a joy that comes from being known by God, loved by Christ, and kept by the Holy Spirit. 
a joy where we trust his sovereign work, even when we can't see everything, even when he's just giving us enough grace for the moment, even when he's just illuminating just enough here. And so what, what, what sorrow are you experiencing? What or who have you lost? For what from has been taken or what is there the threat of losing? What is it that you desire but have not and it's causing grief in your life? It's to these moments that the Holy Spirit makes the difference. In every moment, no doubt. But here particularly in the sorrow that the disciples are experiencing in our own sorrow, our own grief, in our own, the, our own moments of hardship or hatred from the world. There's some anchors here that Jesus drops down to keep us that the sorrow is temporary. That's the hope. Even if it is never resolved here on earth. Even if I have to wait till heaven, it's an anchor that keeps us, our faith, from going out to sea. And secondly, that the Holy Spirit is at work to transform you. That the Holy Spirit is at work to loosen our grip on our own uh, ideas, our own independence, our own, uh, uh, our own pride and arrogance to keep us close and abiding in Him. That's what He wants to do. And that's as we pray that way, God's will to be done in us as we ask God to sanctify us, to save us, to surrender us, to humble us, to persevere us. He answers that, and these things are what truly bring us joy, a joy that is produced uh, through sorrow, a joy that is produced by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it is a joy that we experience as we come to God, as we ask and receive in prayer. So let's do that now. Let's take God at his work and just spend a few moments praying and then we will sing in response and worship to our great God. But bow your heads and let's pray together. God in heaven, thank you for passages like these, passages that anchor us, passages that uh, uh, show us really the difference, the hope that we have and the help that we have in your Holy Spirit. And so we just tell you thank you for that. Lord, uh, even, uh, even now, we just bring to you the circumstances that grieve us. The people that uh, uh, maybe are, uh, that, that, that where there's hurt. Relationships that are broken. People that we wish were sitting next to us and are not. Or circumstances that are hard. We just, we bring them to you tell you about them, to, we cast them at your feet and ask even now that you would do your convicting work. Convict us, where are we wrong, God? Where are we clinging to what is sinful? Where are we clinging to our own righteousness? Where are we minimizing the judgment that is to come? God, do your convicting work in all involved. Lord, we can't we can't coerce anybody. We can't force anybody to see you, to repent. And so we plead with you. We plead with you, Spirit, do your convicting work. Guide us into all truth, Lord. Make much of Jesus in our minds, in the whole situation. Would you be glorified? Would the truth be made known? Would Jesus be made much of? 
would you do your truly transforming work? Turn our sorrow to joy, God. A joy that can't be taken away. A joy that is full and free and moving, moving us in faith, moving us on mission. A joy that really is only possible because of you, Jesus, and what you did on that cross. Oh God, you are so good. You are sovereign. You are at work in all things. Never, never once have you left us. Never once have you forsaken us. Even as you would leave Jesus, you didn't leave the disciples. You didn't leave the world in a lurch, but you sent your spirit. This ministry was so, it continues to be so much better. God, teach us that. Help us to see it. Help us to walk, to be led by your spirit in everything, but especially in our sorrow. We love you now, Lord. Thank you for this. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.